My night, as you can probably guess, was consumed by the concoctions of an overtly sexual imagination. The sun prudishly woke me from a particularly licentious dream, and I stepped in the shower lingering on Leslie's nocturnal dance. Unexcited about my day, which was to be consumed with lawyers and executors, I allowed myself the enjoyment of the few remaining remnants of last night's reverie. Grave robbers stripped my brother bare and lay his clothes in a pile less haphazard than they lay his corpse. Leslie's dripping form appeared at the back window of my town car as blurry gray men slung blurry gray earth onto Worm's body behind her. I unlocked the rear door for her, and shortly after, she did the same for me. Pressed tight against a steamy, slowly melting window, I brought her to climax and washed these pilfered cufflinks for my brother's clothes. She asked if I finished, and I answered by redoubling my pace. I watched the drenching rain wash over his bleach-white body and tried to focus on Leslie's perfect breasts. Instead, I kept returning to Worm's hollow stare as the rain exposed a rictus that spread unnaturally across his face and mocked my impotence. I spun the faucet to cold and let my erection disappear with the residue of the dream. I began to roll a morning cigarette when I caught sight of the alarm clock by the bed. I slammed a shot of Sanka crystals and chased it with a swig of warm tap water, letting the coffee brew in my stomach as I jogged to my rental car. The director cast Leslie LaCrosse as Sari's understudy in Worm's second son. Despite her marginal talent for performance outside the bedroom, Worm convinced him to let her play the lead Sabine tribeswoman in his production of Romulus. She was unconventionally attractive. With a Roman profile, aquiline nose, and undersized but gravity-defying breasts, she registered below the cutoff of my sexual exploits. In fact, it wasn't until Worm pulled me aside following a callback rehearsal and asked in Veneva to spare her for him that I even paid her a second glance. As I'd never felt competition for a woman, least of all by my pariah of a twin, I was taken aback by his request. And only after hearing Usiki Kel, I will not pursue her, did he release my arm and allow me the role of the Roman patriarch. Worm convinced her that she had a natural knack for the stage and recommended they rehearse in solo to develop her skills further. She bought his ruse, book, lines, and simper, and met with him semi-weekly for hour-long practice sessions. Unfortunately for Worm, however, she viewed him as a mentor and a muse, and not a romantic lead, as it were. Despite his dejection, he continued to hold a candle and kept her in the spotlight and I, remaining true to my vow, kept out of the dressing room. I will confess, however, the idea of a woman that was unattainable planted a curious seed and slowly transformed her beauty beyond merely marginal. Even this day, as I walked in the law office's conference room, did I feel a flurry of temptation from the veiled black object of my late brother's sanctioning. The room was filled with beneficiaries of Worm's writing, agents, publishers, editors, critics even. They clutched aging first editions barely containing their words. They sipped caramelized coffee in the halls and mumbled their favorite passages as though summoning their benefactor to be kind to them during the reading. 
They prayed endowment of a final piece of wealth before he became nothing more than a line item on the annals of American Authors' Compendium. After all, they'd done their time, each of them. They'd sat with Worm through periods of silence that lasted weeks, sometimes months. They'd read bloated rebuttals to their critiques, published in the late city finals that humiliated their trade and their talent. They spent hours in line waiting lectures that were canceled due to sudden bursts of agita, laryngitis, or food poisoning. They were the loyal friends and fans of reclusive genius, determined that they were owed something beyond the legacy of Worm's work. In all honesty, the wave of disgust from this realization almost washed me from the room. I was no stranger to armies of my brother's acolytes, worm shippers, I called them, the veritable congregations that found religion in his work. But the morning superficiality caught me off guard, and I retreated to a door for a smoke and to steady my breathing. The previous night's rain had tapered to a dull gray mist, causing the rolling paper to stick closed without persuasion, but the cigarette needed to be relit a number of times. Upon my third relighting, I noticed I wasn't alone. Can't believe he's gone, Leslie said. Her lips burned vermilion below her veil. She stunningly slipped a whirl of hair behind her ear and righted the black mesh. Each motion she made, unique and flawlessly executed, redefined femme fatale. She was still wearing her wedding ring, I noticed, though her husband was gone. It was too soon for her to take it off. The air roiled with her perfume, which she hadn't changed since her teens, a subtle commingling of bergamot and water lotus. Many others bore her scent over the years, though their aromas never intoxicated me the way hers did. None ever would. A little over a decade before, she'd lie at my feet and pled with me for mercy. The gods foretold of your arrival, sweeping across our lands like locusts, consuming everything in your wake. Years ago, when missives from the Outer Lands arrived to speak of the vast swarm with impregnable armor, we knew the prophecy was true. Yet to call it aloud was to give it power, and for all your might, we would not speak your name. She fingered the straps of my faux leather sandals and stared up through tight curled hair stained with tears and stage blood. You have taken our lands and toppled our places of worship, Romulus. You've bested our greatest warriors on field of battle. With unrelenting savagery, you've coerced the Sabine to learn your tongue and to bow to your gods. Yet one battle remains. You've one realm still to conquer. One hand would wrap around my calf and disappear behind my knee. The other reached up, longing to touch my face. But it must not be wrested by force or brutish conquest. I'd lean down to let her stroke my cheek. Her other hand would glide to my exposed outer thigh. A Sabine woman's heart relies rather on sacrifice. Her hand slipped higher. On unyielding devotion, higher. It is a battle you must lose to win. In a swift gesture, one hand would unsheathe the blade from my thigh while the other hooked my neck and spun me to the ground. It was a move we practiced nightly to Worm's unending irritation, and one that was executed flawlessly before the audience each night. In the blink of an eye, she was straddling my chest with her legs pitting me down to my breastplate, a sword across my throat. 
The smoldering remains of distant Sabine villages burned us into silhouettes. Worm's words dripped from her lips as she lingered over me. Only when you lower your metal and will yourself to a Sabine woman, Romulus, will you then conquer her heart. I could smell the bergamot and water lotus radiating from her skin. And only then will you know the entirety of her passion as, helpless in your arms, she moans the one word you long to hear. She let the silence linger. Rome. Sometime in my reverie, the hand rolled went out. I'd all but given up on it when Leslie plucked it from my fingers, lifted her veil, and slipped it between her ruddy lips. I realized at that moment that she wasn't wearing makeup. It must have been the stress of the morning's events that brought her to bite her lips to her full blood-engorged beauty. I flicked my Zippo and, protecting the flame from the wind and mist, guided it under her veil. She breathed in deeply. My eyes on the flame, hers on mine. I closed the lighter and refocused on the two small white scars that followed her clavicle. The limited movement of her shoulder as she lowered her veil did nothing to diminish her grace. Putting the lighter away, I looked out on the dismal Hudson Valley morning. Rolling hills intertwined with murky gray fields and skeletal deciduous trees. The sun was but a smear of lighter gray on the horizon. Rarely had I seen Leslie since high school. I caught sporadic performances in swollen SROs and on the glittering stages, and each time it was a glance, a smile or a nod in each other's direction. My previous return to Pine Harbor marked the only time in recent years where we actually shared a conversation. Three months before his death, at my brother's request, I first returned home. And somewhat against his wishes, I'd accompanied Leslie to the unlikeliest of all places. You look good, she said, crushing the cigarette under a satiny black shoe. You look like him. <laughs>